In Case You Missed It with Susan Cahill. A look back at the week on News Talk. On the rare occasions I use the train uh, for essential travel, it, it's been quiet, well under the 25%. This morning, it was absolutely wedged. It was like the old times 100 plus people in a carriage. Uh, it was very, un- a lot of people were very uncomfortable. People were taking photographs to document the experience. Uh, it was not what we should, not the service we need to provide to essential workers going to work. Did you almost maybe have second thoughts on whether or not to use the dart this morning when you seen how busy it was? Absolutely. I looked at it and went, this might not be a good idea, but then the next train's in 15 minutes. Is it going to be any better? Am I going to get to work on time? Uh, and a lot of people, I think, have the same opinion. They're on shift work. They have to be in at work at time. They had no choice. And Irish Rail could have done a lot better this morning. This has been flagged for two to three weeks. This was going to happen, but they didn't do anything. All schools are back today. So were you in any way surprised that this was the situation this morning? Not surprised. Uh, but I think if we look back in November during the level five there and when the schools were open, we had a full service in the Dublin area. So I cannot see why April is different than November. Barry White reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever wondered, is there life on other planets? Well, take a listen to this. Well, I know you're a fan of pop music from all genres and all times. This reminds me of, you know, you're so vain, you probably think all this is about you. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you see, I think, you know, this is what the show's about in a sense. I find the interesting area is the area between ideas. So there are two ideas here, aren't there? There's, as you said, there's the there's the absolute frag- fragility, the tiny, inconsequential nature of our existence when you put it in terms of light years and galaxies and so on. But at the same time, I am astonished that that we exist. Right? I mean, I find it quite remarkable that that you know, according to the laws of nature. And built out of these building blocks. We're built out of the same thing as all the other stars and planets and clouds of gas in the galaxy. But clearly, that we're important in the sense that the universe means something to us. That's not a, that, I don't think that's a trivial observation. I think it's very important. And I think we underestimate. So I think we, we, we're guilty, if anything, of underestimating our value as a species, as a planet, and as a civilization for that reason. That I don't think there may, there may be few places where this happened. Now, you'll be obviously talking about the stars. You'll be talking then at uh, the, the microscopic level of the uh, quantum physics and uh, yeah. all of the uncertainties involved in quantum physics. But I was reading yeah. about an experiment that's been done at the Fermilab near Chicago. Mm. And you've probably read about this thing. I don't know how you pronounce the muon, M-U-O-N. It's a muon, yeah. And, yeah, I used to, and I used to work it's, at Fermilab. Yeah, well, it's wobbling in a way that is unexpected uh, under uh, the effects of a magnetic field. And they're talking about a new physics. Yeah, I mean, it sounds, when you put it like that, it sounds quite technical, doesn't it? But what what really, this little thing, this little muon, um, it doesn't really matter what it is. It's acting as a probe, um, and it's acting as a probe of space, basically. So it's acting as... um, uh, it's it's kind of interrogating nature for us. And what we find is that, as you rightly said, this thing is behaving in a way that's not quite the way we expect. And what that means, if, if the experiment is confirmed, what it means is that there's some new particle out there, a fundamental particle, which, which could be associated with a force, as you say, a new force of nature that we didn't know about. 
so it's 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 a fascinating result because it's been a long long time probably 50 years i would say since uh, that the, a real unexpected discovery has been made in this field which is and the field is to understand the fundamental building blocks of the universe mm. So that's what we're looking for. And we think we have a hint, but because of the way this little thing behaves, of a new fundamental building block of the universe. Some fascinating insights there from Brian Cox from The Pat Kenny Show. Why is it different to wear an English jersey? It is that age-old rivalry. It's, they are the old enemy from an Irish point of view. England don't look at Ireland the same way we look at them. They will look at Scotland as their great rivals, maybe Argentina or Australia as their great rivals. But for Ireland, everything has always been about beating Italy, our greatest sporting successes, Euro 88, Ray Houseman and all of that. Beating England means more than anything mm. to Irish people. So going and wearing the jersey of England down Grafton Street or in the local park would always get you strange looks. And regardless of the fact that a huge number of Irish people support English clubs. And this is the conversation I'm trying to have with a seven-year-old, which, as you can imagine, is difficult, where he's saying, I have a Harry Kane Tottenham jersey mm. that I wear every day. Why can't I have a Harry Kane England jersey? And uh, you try and give him the top-line history lesson and let the teachers look after the rest of it over the coming years. But England are, as much as there is the history, right? If you were to ask any Irish sports person what team you would like to beat, what are your greatest memories? Beating England at Euro 88 beating England at Crow Park in the rugby. Sport is built on rivalries, so I don't think there's any harm at all in Ireland having that rivalry with England. It's just complicated in football because okay, for the vast majority of the week, the England captain is Jordan Henderson, who lifted the Premier League trophy for Liverpool and half the country were absolutely delighted mm. with it. Mm. So, so would it be a different conversation you'd be having with your seven-year-old if, for instance, he supported a Brazilian player for an English club and wanted to wear a Brazil national jersey? Absolutely, absolutely. And that's where the conversation will be going. I've been trying to convince them to get a Portugal jersey with Diogo Jota on the back or a France jersey with Kylian Mbappe or even a Paul Pogba who again plays for Manchester United in England. So you will see during this summer when Euro 2020 is happening, you will see any amount of children wearing French jerseys, Spanish jerseys, yeah. maybe even some Scottish jerseys considering they've qualified. You won't see many of them wearing English jerseys. Well, so it is, but, but it is I, a history and it is a rivalry. Uh, okay, fine. But I have to put it to you, Nathan. Like, I, you know, this is why there's a rivalry. Is it not the case that you're just simply passing on this kid who doesn't know the difference between 800 years of history? Uh, you're passing on your own prejudices there. I mean, isn't that how sectarianism starts? I'm not trying to overplay it. But I mean, that, you know, you're, you're instilling a biased knowledge which is yours and yours by right for all the reasons that you've outlined. A seven-year-old, does he have to know that, all that stuff at this stage? Listen, I think most people would be reasonable and while 90% of people would feel you shouldn't do it, I think 99.9% of people, if he was in the park wearing an England jersey, you know, might look at it and have a bit of a laugh. Uh, you would always be worried that there's one lunatic who would make life difficult and then you're regretting it for a seven-year-old maybe it's just a, a risk you don't need to take but it, I think if you were to go into a Liverpool house and you were to find a seven-year-old who said I want a Manchester United jersey you would find a lot of opposition from that father that that is what sport is built upon it is built upon the rivalry as I say it's the most complicated situation where kids support these players every day of the week in the Premier League playing for English clubs so while you're right there is undoubtedly an element, and I don't 
suppose, the sectarian element to the rivalry, but there's a long history there. I think there also is a exporting rivalry that we will never support England. And as much as even at the World Cup in 2018, this current England team are a very likable squad. They have a manager in Gareth Southgate is very inoffensive. It's it, it, enjoyable to watch the ride through the last World Cup to the semi-final. When you get to the semi-final and they're playing Croatia and they build up for three or four years and you're watching the BBC and they're getting very carried away, you suddenly think, actually, I think we've had enough of this. I, I wouldn't mind them being beaten. So yeah, so it, it, uh, it's not straightforward. I, I, you can age children, I, I, adults, say now, grown-up men, by the team they support because that team was successful when they were maybe seven or eight at that peak of sporting interest. Um, so you've you've Leeds followers now, even though you know they they've had a, a fairly kind of tragic past. But but at the time they were a winning team and people still support them now. Maybe your son just wants to follow a decent team. I mean, you cannot say we have covered ourselves in glory, Nathan. No, that's that is the difficulty and. And he would be a proud Ireland fan and there's no question like every other child in the country if Ireland had qualified for Euro 2020 he would be in the green all summer long and he would have been like I was at Euro 88 in Italian 90 pretending it was Ray Houghton or pretending it was Kevin Sheedy that opportunity unfortunately for the kids of Ireland isn't going to be there this year mm. do you want them to be running out pretending to be Harry Kane scoring a goal in the European Championship final I'm, I'm not quite sure that is what we want <laughs> that's why we're maybe looking at a, a Portugal jersey or a French jersey but mm. it's it, it, Kids at that age, it's interesting how maybe it has actually changed. You're right. You go through the generation, a generation who watched John Giles at Leeds, support Leeds United, who mm. watched Liam Brady at Arsenal, through to the Manchester United team, Roy Keane. You can track the success of clubs. I find looking at kids at that age now, they're not as obsessed by the club. They're obsessed by the player. So everything is about the superstar on the team. So mm. if Harry Kane were to leave Tottenham for Manchester United, he would bring with them a huge amount of support. They'd all when switch Cristiano into red Ronaldo. shirts. Exactly. When okay. How many children have you seen over the last yeah. five years wearing Real Madrid jerseys with Ronaldo on the back? The second he moved to Juventus, they will all spend that yeah. 70 quid. And that is the other thing here. These jerseys are not cheap. You're talking 70 quid now. From Lunchtime Live. Here we are. We're in Greystones. It's we both look pretty scruffy, and uh, you Thanks know, very much. we both we both. <laughs> no offense, Stephen, but we both grew up here. We both yeah. went to the local school, and you know, I have seen your career, your political career, from from when it was in its fledgling stages right the way through to you being the minister for health currently. And there's another side to you. you look, you are a local. Your family are here, and. and is it very hard, Stephen, to marry those two things, the, the personal and the political sides to your life? You're a fairly normal bloke, and yet, you know, you get a lot of abuse online, you get a lot of things written about you. Is that a difficult experience, and, and perhaps one that you didn't know was coming when you got into politics? Yeah, it is. It is. I, I know what we're all meant to say is not at all. Sure, we don't, we don't notice any of that stuff, but, like, that's nonsense. We're all human. And none of us want to be attacked. We're living through really, really difficult times. People have just, they've been through so much. And therefore, there is a lot of anger. There is a lot of frustration. There, there, there is a lot of pain. And inevitably, if, if you're a, one of the public figures of this, you're going to attract attacks. And so does it affect you? Of course it does. Like there was a week there in the doll. I was in early. I was preparing for a... A Q&A session on vaccines. The family home had been attacked. There was a lot of things going on. And then up on my phone popped 
uh, it was an article that was being written and I didn't read it but the headline was enough and uh, yeah there are moments where it just goes oh Jesus like would you ju- <laughs> we're, we're all like we're all and it might not always feel it but like we're all on the same team here we're all trying to do the best so does it matter uh, it does it, but you, you have to just compartmentalise it but, but Stephen you mentioned the family home being attacked and I know that you have, have recently had to increase security around your family home and all of that like would this put you off politics is it at that level insofar as that I, I, I do think discourse around people in public life and around politicians in particular has gotten worse yeah, it, it has got worse certainly I've been in politics now for 10 years and there's a level of abuse and personalization that just wasn't there 10 years ago you know and it's 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 getting worse and worse certainly people I talk to good people who you'd love to see run for office they just laugh at me and say but sure why would I do that why would I put myself out there and take all of this abuse you know and a lot of it if you don't mind me saying it as well can be gendered certainly when I talk to my female colleagues and I've heard people like Lisa Chambers talk about this before there is an additional really nasty misogynistic piece for women and lastly on all of that piece and thank you for talking about it things like having to increase your your family home security does that make you angry or or, or does that frighten you that that your family have been swept up in what is essentially a job Uh, yeah look I, I obviously Obviously, I, I don't want to get into it too much for reasons you'll understand, but when it, it comes to your home and when your family get brought into it, that's just a line that should never be crossed. Look, it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be tolerated because, like you say, people are doing a job, but we've got to make sure that politics is something that people aspire to do. Like, what I'm doing right now professionally is, by a million miles, the greatest honour of my life. Like, what a an honour to get the chance to be one of the team and it is a team like this really is a team Ireland effort to fight this disease and to keep everybody safe and to get us out of this you know I was up in the Helix where there's a big vaccination centre and who did we have we had the people from the university from DCU Dublin airport had sent up wheelchairs we had medical students we had retired nurses GPs and we've had the Air Corps fly vaccines to islands one of the unsung heroes of this has been the National Ambulance Service we should be really proud of our nation. Team Ireland. The, yeah. Kira Kelly there on News Talk Breakfast. And there was more talk about walking on Moncrief. Here's Paul Salopek, who's been walking for over eight years. Yes, you heard that correctly. Have you encountered many other people walking? I mean, apart from your walking partners, but people who just, for the course of their day, have to walk from point A to point B? Um, There are literally billions of micro migrations going on these days. And I'll call them migrations because now we have intentionality. We've invented destinations. But, you know, a commuter going to work on the tube or on the metro is doing a micro migration. Mm. Uh, a woman who's, who's going out to her fields to work in the morning and come back home is doing a micro migration. And interestingly, we're doing the same pattern of migrations that we've done since the Stone Age, since we're hunter and gatherers. Rarely a straight line. Sean, it's a circle. Because 60,000 years ago, we left a shelter under a rock or under a tree and walked, I don't know, five to seven to eight kilometers a day, foraging for plants, hunting for food. But we came back to that rock and tree, a circle. We Mm. do that when we go to work every day. That is before the pandemic. Uh, yes, well, and we'll get to that in a minute. But uh, I, but I also assume then that that uh, in choosing your routes, you're avoiding highways and that kind of thing. You're you're choosing routes where uh, they're they're smaller, and you might see other people walking. 
That's correct. That's absolutely correct. Because again, you know, highways are fantastic for machines. Mm. They are designed, built for machines with wheels. They are not designed for human beings. They're not designed for sinew and muscle. And not only are they hard to walk on with, you know, jarring your joints and making you feel extra tired at the end of the day, they're psychologically difficult. They're heavy. You're walking through sound waves of loud engine noise, exhaust. Mm. Um, you're getting blasted by, you know, air, hot air in the, in the wake of big trucks. It's an unpleasant route to walk. I pick sideway, you know, alleyways, farm roads, um, even walking across wilderness sometimes. Now, and you did say that, you know, the people who did this thousands of years ago would have avoided things like glaciers. What kind of things have you had to avoid now in the modern era? Well, the, the, my version of, a, of, a, of, you know, a kilometer wall of ice, a glacier, is a modern political border. Political borders, these invisible, intangible barriers become very hard when you don't have a visa. Uh, and they, are, they serve the same sort of purpose as an obstacle. Um, I, I, I had to walk around literally some countries because I could not get a visa to go through. Uh, and, you know, on the one hand, that would be frustrating and disappointing. But on the other, it's all part of the experience. And, and these, these kind of deviations from a proposed route have actually opened up whole new parts of the world that I have never imagined and were, were extraordinarily rich. I, I walked through the Caucasus, for example, mm. because I couldn't get a visa to walk through Iran. And the Caucasus were an extraordinarily complex mosaic of human experience, human culture that was way off my psychic map. And I, and I spent months there. It was a very rich experience. And when, when countries wouldn't give you a visa, Paul, did they give a reason why? Wasn't you were, you know, uh, you're an American and I'm just walking to Argentina and the Iranian said, yeah, sure you are. Uh huh. Yeah, I'm sure that was what's going through the bureaucrats mind in Tehran. But, you know, the, the, the countries that don't give you visas often don't tell you why they don't give you visa. And in fact, you don't know. They never say no. They just mm. don't answer. What an interesting guy. Journalist and writer Paul Selipek from Moncrief. Your breath is sweet, your eyes are like two jewels in the night. Your back is straight, your hair is smooth on the pillow where you lie. But I don't sense affection, no gratitude or love Your loyalty is not for me, but to the stars above One more cup of coffee for the road One more cup of coffee before I go to the valley below Your daddy, he's an outlaw, a wanderer by trade. He'll teach you how to pick and choose, or how to throw a blade. He oversees his kingdom, so no stranger does it true. His voice, it trembles as he calls out for another plate of food. One more cup of coffee. For the road One more cup of coffee Before I go To the valley below To the valley below 
legendary Tom Jones as heard on The Tom Dunn Show. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. To me, it's just the, the politicians that have voted in have let the people down. That's all. It's nothing to do with Bobby's story. It's nothing to do with everything else. The politicians are meant to get together and sort the country out, and they're still fighting amongst each other. As for the buses, they shouldn't have torched the buses. I mean, there's other ways to voice your opinion. The problem is with the history of Northern Ireland itself, that the history has proved the people that create the most violence are the ones that get the most rewards. And you've hit on something there, the fact that people are listening, there's huge global media attention right now on Northern Ireland because of the violence. And are they using violence to try and get to the negotiating table? You're right in the way about trying to get the negotiating table through violence. But the other thing is, I mean, this is Northern Ireland. It's a little pinprick on the world. But yet of all, every media, every country is watching this country. Why are they watching this country? There's thousands of other countries out there. The reason why they're watching this country is because we have so much history with the US of A. Most of the presidents from the US of A have got some sort of thing to hear. They have a link to Northern Ireland. Yeah, and that's why... There's so much emphasis on Northern Ireland. Nobody would give a crap about this place if it wasn't for that there. Everybody would go and let them fight amongst themselves. These young people, they're very, very young. Some of them are as young as 12, 13 who are rioting and using petrol bombs. Is it being orchestrated by older people, people in your age group? I'm not saying you. <laughs> I, I can't say yay or nay. There's nothing for kids to do. And in my day, when we done it, and I admit that we used to rat, we done it. We used to arrange the rats with the other side just for something to do, and it's probably just a break in the monotony over the COVID, over everything else. They're getting out to do something, and they're getting out with their friends, which I mean, you can't blame people. They've been stuck inside for so long. And there is a peace wall that's still there between the Falls Road and the Shankill Road. And last night, those gates were locked, and there was um, perhaps abuse being thrown over the walls and stones over the walls last night. It was like. Back that, to your day. Is that not an oxymoron? A peace wall? Well, you can call it a violence wall if you want. You, you, well, it's it's not a peace wall. It's a division. It's a division of two different cultures. Where every other country, can, most of their countries can all mix together, you know. But when you put the divides up, the divides need to come down. The divides needed to come down 20 years ago. When they signed all their Good Friday agreements and what have you, the divides should have come down then and make the people mix make the schools more mixing so the Protestants and the Catholics are in the same schools so if they're going to hate each other they're hating each other because they don't like each other not because somebody in the street tells them not to like the other person Would you tell a youngster in a hoodie uh, with a petrol bomb with rocks put it down would you challenge them or would you stay away? I'd probably clip his ear <laughs> Sorry but I would It doesn't get you anywhere It really doesn't get you anywhere And you miss the rioting when you were a teenager? When I was a t- teenager it was a different it was a different scenario back then. It wasn't the scenario that they have now. Up until um, a year and a half ago, before this COVID thing, Northern Ireland was going along really peaceful, really good, really doing well. Actually, it was probably one of the most up-and-coming parts between the South and England. We were probably beginning to become the most prosperous of the whole lot, but now it's all gone pat because of stupidity again. I think it's people on Facebook that are doing it themselves, who are organising it themselves. I don't think it's anything to do with Eunice, although the, the politicians don't help by letting them. But at the end of the day, it's people arranging it on Facebook. You get people arranging fights on Facebook where both factions have 
met on the New Lodge Road for fights between the Protestants and the Catholics. The difference is now it's more highlighted because of this, of what's happening. Our, our culture's been undermined there, so it is. And it seems what IRA done over the 30 years to get, the, to get Sinn Féin to be where they are today gives some food to thought why people are out in the streets. Because they're saying, yeah, if they can do it, we can do it. Thatcher and all, to stop the violence in Northern Ireland, the bombing, the shooting, killing the police force, and some people out socialising. But as I say, young people who's probably have family members who remember all that there, quite possibly involved in it. And they say, well, it's time now to push back. Not that we we'll want to see violence on the streets, but I think a loyalist community has been pushed far enough through the hub. Some of them are kids, some of them could be your grandkids. They're, they're young, they don't remember the troubles. You remember the violence, you remember the death, you remember the suffering. I was unfortunate enough to be blown up in one of them pubs up there. You got I, blown up? Yes, I was in the Mountain View bar when I was blown up. But that didn't make me a bad person. I'm not a bigot, and I'm, I'm not a racist. And uh, like, it's not Catholic people, it's Republicans. Republicans' agenda is for a united Ireland. And what is these young people rising? What is their end game? What do they want? They want to hold on to their heritage, so they do. And they think they're being pushed into a corner. So it is. It's not good, but as I say, they need to make a stand. Doesn't seem our politicians are helping as much. Arlene Foster especially. Henry McKean reporting. Vincent Hogan and Cleena Foley are with me. And guys, I think there's pretty much only one place we could start. I was saying it earlier on to Gavin Riley here in News Talk that in the couple of years I've been involved in this Sunday show, a lot of the times we come in instantly, we're going for what's on the back pages. First thing we do when we come into the office. And if I ever see a sports story on both the front and back pages, it's either something absolutely wonderful or I'm getting ready to call the solicitor here to double check that we're okay to speak about it. Thankfully, it's the former that we're talking about today. A brilliant story and some brilliant coverage of Rachel Blackmore right across the Sunday papers today. Yeah, Neil, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you have to remind yourself that this this race is 182 years old. Um, and it's it's only very recently when you think of that history, I think it was 1977 was the first female jockey to ride in it, uh, Charlotte Brew. And it was 1982, Geraldine Rees was the first female finisher. So I suppose it's, it's little wonder that the media is obsessing about the historic nature of a female rider winning this. But I, I really enjoyed Rachel's interview at the end of it yesterday I, because I, I do detect, and I certainly detected this in Cheltenham as well, that she's really weary of the gender side to this conversation. She wants to be judged as a jockey. And when you listen to Ruby Walsh speaking about her and AP McCoy speaking about her, and and those two kind of gods of this sport have retired in the very recent past, as has Barry Geraghty, it's very clear that Rachel Blackmore is the one who has stepped into their shoes now, that she is the standout national hunt jockey around not the standout female jockey, the standout jockey. And even to a totally uneducated eye like mine, when I'm watching a race, and, and I actually, I, I knew the result of the race yesterday before I got to see it. So I had the luxury of watching her from start to finish in the race. And it was just poetry in motion. I mean, the way she positioned that horse on the rail, there wasn't a single moment where you thought, oh, that was tricky. That was nearly 
a problem for her. Composure, elegance, patience, um, just a magnificent show of class in the saddle. And and I think that's where we're at now. My, my favourite quote that I've read in the papers this morning is from Bruff Scott, mm. who says, Rachel Blackmore has told us to grow up, to judge riders on their merits, not on whether they're male, female or any other gender. And I couldn't agree more. I, I think that's a great piece today. The Bruff Scott is actually probably the best piece um, because of its analysis as well, Neil. And um, by the way, uh, Mail, the Mail on Sunday actually have a piece with Geraldine Reese, a kind of a first person piece with her, which is lovely. And she said, she says, Rachel said she didn't feel female, she didn't feel male, she didn't even feel human. Well, I think she's superhuman. But the Bruff Scott piece is really important. And I know, Vincent, you were at Chatham, I think, this year, were you? But um, because the, the the defining point perhaps of her career this year up until yesterday uh, was the Gold Cup in Cheltenham where she didn't where she she was she picked the wrong horse if you like um, and and Jack Kennedy went on Manello Indo and she finished second and her face I remember her face watching her face after coming out of that race and you knew then just how competitive she was and her Cheltenham this year was extraordinary not only was she top jockey but it was the falls she had the bad falls she had as well as the amazing victories so to miss the big double in Cheltenham I think that really really hurt her but it just shows I mean Tony McCoy put it beautifully yesterday when he was saying about he said you know you judge a brilliant jump jockey by how physically and it, 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 he said it's just such a physically and, and mentally demanding sport and he said she's got it both ways and like even if you just look at her I mean the, the amount of rides that she's ridden she's ridden she has she's so far this season she has 506 rides so she's 10 behind um, in the Irish to Paul Townend but she has she, he's only ridden 284 rides. That just tells people the amount of work this woman puts in and the amount of work she's willing to put in as well. And I think that, that was captured yesterday. And it was so lovely to see her. I mean, you're absolutely right, Vincent, as well. She has, you know, for the last two years, battled to take the gender out of her job, job description. Um, and she absolutely did it yesterday. She certainly did. Kleena Foley and Vincent Hogan from the Sunday Paper Review on Off the Ball. Now, on Down to Earth this week, Cara Gustenberg spoke with comedian and actor PJ Gallagher. You have given up uh, buying clothes, I understand. So when was the last time you bought clothes? Okay, yesterday, right? Before, <laughs> before that, months ago. I bought the new Bohemians jersey yesterday. So I was like, what? I had to have it. Um, but before that, like, I, I, I'm really, really, I hardly buy clothes at all anymore. Like, really hardly at all. Uh, I'm down to two pairs of jeans. I actually found a pair of jeans in the shed last week. I was over the moon. <laughs> Are you really? You're not, you're not going to buy any more jeans ever? No, well, I, I definitely will eventually. Like, you know, I had a pair of jeans I really liked and I wore out the sort of crotch area of them. I was very disappointed. Now I found a new pair. They've got shallow pockets, but, you know, I'll get a year out of them. Uh, <laughs> so uh, like that, I'm trying, really trying not to buy any new clothes and I realize I don't need much. Like I, I can see all every piece of clothing I own. I can see from where I'm sitting right now in the house. What in, what's inspired that decision to not buy clothes? Are you just not into I, fashion or? No, I, I no, I, I for a very brief period, I, I thought like like I, I don't really do anything else, uh, so I'm gonna buy clothes. And I started see, believe it or not, as pathetic as it sounds, it was like Instagram influencers that started getting this message across. So there's like this woman called Geraldine Cart, and she has this, um, you know, she she does a lot about sustainable fashion and 
uh, the damage it can cause the environment. And he just, again, I was just completely clueless. So, uh, and, I, and, and I like saving money. So if I can save money and with a clean conscience, it makes me kind of happy, you know. Uh, I'd rather collect a few quid than a, a few jumpers. I guess that helps as well. <laughs> That's a good argument. You founded a cycling club in Clontarf, and, and you're quite a keen uh, cycler and motorcyclist. But uh, how do you feel about our cycling infrastructure in Dublin? You have, like, I spoke to you, I don't know, not very long ago about cycling. And I was like giving out about all the cycling access. And then I have spent this morning fixing up my bike. <laughs> so, I'm such a turncoat. I mean, like, I, I, th- I, I obviously I, cycling is great and all, but I don't think it's the answer for everybody. You know, I don't think cycling at the expense of motoring completely really helps because it helps a certain amount of people, but there's very few people really in the grand scheme of things that can just jump on a bike and go anywhere they want. You know, my mom's 83 years old. I, I'm not going to, she's not going to be able to get in a bike, you know, um, you know, like people, big families can't get on bikes. People who have to do big family shops can't get on bikes. And, and then on nice days, it can be, it can feel like if you're not young, fit and healthy, that you get excluded from certain places because you can't be on a bike. So yeah. I love, I founded the cycling club. I love everything on two wheels, but, it can't just be cycling focused without being focused on people who can't get on bikes too. You know, I don't know what the answer for that is. I don't know if there's like a driving limit for over 62s or something. I really don't know. PJ Gallagher from Down to Earth with Cara Gustenberg. And of course, you can catch Cara every Saturday evening from 8 till 9. In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk. I think being young, you get the opportunity to wait to see what everybody else has taken and make that decision. It's uh, obviously harder for the older generation because they're getting mixed messaging right now. Would you take it? I'm not answering you, Henry. <laughs> and what about you? Would you take the AstraZeneca? I, I'll be honest with you, at the moment, no, I wouldn't. No. Wait. I'd wait, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I would. I think it's important for everyone to get vaccinated to help protect the vulnerable. So I would definitely get it. You'd take it tomorrow? Take it tomorrow. Take it today. Definitely, yeah. I'm having a chat with my dad, Hamish McKean. You've just been vaccinated minutes ago. How are you feeling? I'm feeling fine. I uh, can't really believe how well I feel. I'm extremely logistically well organised in the local GP. Straight in and straight in with the Pfizer vaccination. So I'm feeling fine and delighted to, to have it done. I've got my second jab on the 11th of May. Can't wait. I'm having a chat with my mum, Rosemary. You're waiting to have your son any yes, minute now. I'm in about 10 minutes. I'll be uh, inoculated. Um, and uh, I, I hope I will get Pfizer like a, like a father. Um, I won't go into the reasons why, but I'm delighted. A bit disappointing, it's all a bit late, um, but I can only put it down to the fact that the local GP thought we were both too, too hale and hearty to be vaccinated. We're in the category 60-69 and extremely worried, have done a lot of research, very, very worried about the AstraZeneca. Why is it okay for us? It's not for the 70 plus, it's not for less than us. So I need a lot more convincing even though it means there's a lot more AstraZeneca out there for you and perhaps you could be vaccinated quicker than That's previously the other planned. Side of it. Yes, 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 yeah. but I still would do a lot of research into it to see why. We just heard earlier on that they've cancelled 10,000 uh, doses today because of their fears for it. So um, it's as if they're all not working together. Would you take it despite what we know? Yes, 
for the simple reason it uh, for the implications with family to meet family very much. Yeah, so. I absolutely, I would take it. Yes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I, there'd be a small bit of fear there. So we just heard the air corps go past there, almost doing a flyby. <laughs> I mean, there are good times ahead, aren't there? There are definitely, definitely. We take the flu vaccine every year, every year, and there's implications with that too. Any vaccine you take, definitely. It's like it's, just like, it's like the tail wagging the dog in a sense, you know, that they seem to emphasise on the as you give the you know, statistics there correctly, it, like it's minimal. But yet the emphasis seems to be on that and it's creating a lot of fear on people. And you have programme after programme mm. announcements about the negative side of things. If you're not people of hope, where do you go? You got your vaccine today. Congratulations. How do you feel? Oh, I feel great. Very happy to have it done. I trust the Pfizer, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a personal question, how old are you? How old am I? I'm not 70 yet, sure I'm not, Hilda. What? 82. 82? Yeah, but that's whoever way they have of counting it now, I think it's... Well, tell me I'm 82, or maybe I am. Well, so that was not 82, my last... So you're delighted anyway? Birthday. Uh, oh, I'm glad to have it, yes. Well, congratulations. Thank you very much. Well, I've had the Pfizer, uh, the Pfizer vaccination. Uh, the AstraZeneca, I, I don't think I'd like it, because they say there's so, so few. But knowing my luck, I'd be the one to get it. But there's a tiny chance. Oh, I, I agree, I agree. There's a, but there's a tiny chance of go, walking out on the road and you get knocked down by a car. It is, it's lightning strike stuff, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. But I mean, I, th I don't know, I think they've messed up a bit. I have been vaccinated, but I would take anyone that I would be offered to. I've just had my second vaccination. Congratulations. Okay. What type was it? Uh, the Pfizer. So you must be thrilled, you I'm must delighted. have a spring in your set. Do you yeah. want to drink a bottle of champagne? <laughs> At least one. <laughs> At least one? Yeah. I think you're better getting anything than getting nothing. I can understand people's fear, but I, I think you're better getting something than getting nothing. Just get stabbed in the arm. Yeah, I've just come from my doctor now, so I'm clear, I'm, I'm fine. So congratulations. Happy. Thank you very much indeed. And what are you going to do now to get happy? Well, if I'm going to get happy, I'm going to go home, take my dog for a walk. Henry McKean reporting for Moncrief. On Sunday, Claire McKenna explored the power of music with cellist Gerard Peregrine. And what kind of reaction do you see, Gerald, from your audience as you're in various medical and care facilities? Well, there's a lot of documentation that's out there about the effects of music in healthcare settings and um but, you know, a lot of artists went online at the beginning of the pandemic and that we looked at that as a possibility. But for me, the healing and the power of music is through the personal connection that you get. It's that energy. It's that emotional connection when you hear music being made live and how you react and how the air is changed around you, how, how you feel. It's so dependent on the person being present, I feel. And uh, we've worked in amazing environments with incredible staff and just to give you a couple of examples in the psychiatric ward in in uh in waterford in one of the hospitals a woman who was catatonic for six months the nurse was walking by her bed as she listened we were in the courtyard and she just said oh isn't the music lovely and the lady said oh i'm enjoying it very much thank you and the first communication in six months um we had a man who was 80 years of age in waterford 
in tears telling us that he had never heard live opera before, but he thought he'd go to his grave without hearing it. And we questioned him why he hadn't been to the concert hall down the road, the Theatre Royal. And he said, well, you know, all my life I was told this just wasn't for me. I wouldn't fit in. And he said, now you've popped up outside my garden during a pandemic singing Puccini. He said, I can go to my grave happy. And I said, well, you might want to hold on to that thought because we're coming back in a few weeks. Wow. I mean, that is just pure magic, isn't it? It's it's very small acts on our behalf can have a huge effect. And I think one of the things we're discovering is, and this is part of the work we did with our education company, it's about creating a quality of access. I mean, only last week we were playing in Waterford Wexford Mental Health Services to men and women who were in very long-term residential healthcare settings and would have had many challenges throughout their whole life and maybe had never had access to live music at all. So their uh, doctors arranged for them to dress up in tuxedos. They had beer, they had uh, strawberries and ice cream in the garden. And we obviously were able to have a very uh, enjoyable time together. And I think it gave people a sense of, you know, importance more so than the music, the fact that we traveled to see them. And we're working with really some of the finest artists in Ireland are, are part of the project at this stage. So you get great recognition of some of the musicians. We we came across a lovely couple in, uh, in uh, I think it was in Limerick, and they were a married couple in a residential care facility, and they were sat in the window, hands held, watching the concert. And as we were leaving, when the lady knocked on the window and said to Anthony Kearns, you know, I've been a fan of yours my whole life. I've been to every one of your concerts, and I never thought I'd get to see you again. And here you are singing at my window. Wow, it's given me goosebumps. And because you're doing it in a safe way in a garden, I mean, still, there have been family members who haven't been allowed into gardens of care facilities. Is what you're bringing to these residents or these patients, is that now considered to be essential to their well-being? Is that how it's still continuing? It's considered a mental health intervention. And what is lovely now is everywhere we go, the care homes or the hospitals will video and take many photos and they'll pass that on to the family members. And we hear back from the carers that this is providing huge sense of comfort to family members who can't be there themselves yet, but knowing that their loved ones are getting these opportunities and um, it's a step closer to returning to a sense of normalcy for them. So it's just a small bridge uh, um, uh, in the gap. And it looks, uh, I'm really looking forward to the point where the family members will be able to join us as well outside when the concerts happen in the summer. And uh, again, we're reaching, trying to reach people who may never have had access to live music. What a terrific initiative. Cellist Jared Peregrine from Alive and Kicking with Claire McKenna. And of course, you can tune into Claire every Sunday morning from 9 till 10. OK, I'm going to leave you with now the talented Declan O'Rourke, who played live for Pat on The Pat Kenny Show. Have a great weekend. There's a song that we'll play in a moment, Olympian. Now, that is a true story and a very dramatic story and a very moving story. Explain. My wife brought a story to me recently about um, a swimmer um, from Syria and her name is Yusra Mardini and I think she was about 16 years old. She had she had been swimming all her life training with the dream of being an Olympian and 
she had to basically, I suppose, escape war-torn Syria and had this harrowing journey escaping, you know, across Turkey and, and getting into one of these illegal boats crossing the agency and the, the boat got into trouble during the night crossing the sea with people of all ages in it and um, they just, um, her and her sister jumped out of the boat and started swimming, pulling the boat by the ropes and for at least a mile I think through through open water, it's just the most incredible heroic story I thought it was like something out of Greek mythology or something, you know, and they made it to the other side and uh, in incredibly under those conditions, basically saved the lives of so many people. She she made her way not long after, found her way to Berlin, I think. And from there in, in the last Olympics, she was picked as one of the first uh, members uh, or the members of one of the, uh, the first ever team of displaced peoples to represent the Olympics. And um, I think she yeah, won the, a couple of The head of, of the Olympic uh, Commission said, you know, it's not right that these people who've been dedicating their lives to competing in the Olympics and now are displaced people that they shouldn't have their moment because, you're, you're, you know, your athletic career, your swimming career is short anyway. And another Olympic cycle, even if there were to be peace in Syria, which there's not, uh, would maybe be a lost opportunity. You know, they'd never right. get to do it oh. again. So she did get to do it. I'll pause you there and we'll, we'll just hear a little bit of Olympian. Into the water so clear and blue The crowds are cheering Willing her through She wins the heat But the next brings tears The dream is over For four more years Back in the homeland she strained and strived Each day she sweated From her a child To glimpse the gold And the coloured rings And give the hearts of The masses wings But darkness came to her Syria with bombs and bullets the reign of war through burning Lebanon she had to flee her dreams behind her down to the sea into a boat there In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.